Hello, and welcome to Not Quite Great Books, a TV and sometimes other things podcast. I'm one of your hosts, John McMahon. Joining me, other line, not Danielle Hanley, who is stuck in travel purgatory. What did she do to get there? It's <laughs> a great question. However, we are joined on the other line by our very own flapper and raspberry. It's Desiree Weber and Sid Simpson. Desiree, Sid, welcome to Not Quite Great Books. Well, thank you Thanks, for having John. me. Crucial question to begin. Which one of you is Flapper? Which one of you is Raspberry? Sid, you do not get to definitely, this. definitely Raspberry. <laughs> <laughs> Under yeah, all circumstances. I, I, now, this is also what I would have assigned you to the roles to. Um, but Desert, do you, do you have a case? Are there like justifications for for why you are uh, Raspberry and or why Sid is Flapper? In all possible yeah. multiverses, <laughs> this is always the way this is going to be. <laughs> My long-standing and abiding love of raspberries, first off. Okay. And Sid probably pulling off a flapper dress better than I can. Same. Yeah. Too true. Yeah. Definitively <laughs> puts these two labels on us in the way that you've articulated them. Absolutely. I no question. love the vision, Desiree. That sounds great. <laughs> I, I thought you were going to say just because I flap my, uh, flap my gums all the time. But no, 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 no. See? See, I set you up to say that on your own and not have well, me have I'll, to say it. You're too kind to me. I'm telling on myself. <laughs> they're, they're pros already. Look at that. Setting each other up indirectly. <laughs> this is this is wonderful. We, we do miss Danielle. This is our second attempt at recording this podcast. Danielle was spent over 72 hours for her to get from LA to Massachusetts. Danielle sends her regrets. We do thankfully have Danielle's presence in spirit always um, and her notes <laughs> on the outline. So we will, we will do our best to bring Danielle. And I think Danielle would approve of Desiree, me giving you a uh, full carte blanche to take over all of her time for talking about language. I will try to rep her as best as I can. <laughs> you two are spared the two of us going two by two, uh, you know, against whatever y'all are going to contribute. So I, mean, I just, would, I just would have seated the floor. Like I got nothing. <laughs> right. Um, um, like language is not a thing that I am intelligent about. I'm You're using it right that. now. <laughs> <laughs> Damage. Got me. <laughs> this is the heptapod as people mm-hmm. saw in their podcast. Yeah. Apps, talking about a uh, story of your life, a 1998 novella by Ted Chang and arrival, the 2016 film directed by Denis Villeneuve. I guess maybe it's worth a, a slight hint of how this episode came about. Different story uh, with, with Danielle not here, but a it was going to be all of my present co-authors together, which was fun. Um, <laughs> if, if, if we ever did reviews <laughs> from a certain journal to not be named on air, um, that would be nice. And also because the three of us here were chatting at dinner after APT a few months ago, and I had just watched Arrival. You two impressed upon me the Ted Chang, uh, the collection that includes Story of Your Life. And I was obviously like, well, we should do a podcast about that, because what in my life do I not want to turn into a podcast in terms of (laughs) cultural (laughs) objects? And here we are. So maybe either... We were quite insistent. Correctly so, because right. Story of Your Life, like, one of the better pieces of fiction I've read in a while. Um, and, of of course, I then went on to read many of the other short stories in the same mm-hmm. collection. Um, I think Tower of Babylon was probably my favorite, other yeah. than Story of Your Life, mm-hmm. um, which one of you two suggested is the place to go next. So, Sid, Desiree, like, tell us maybe about Ted Chang and about uh, this novella, and then we can use that to kind of open into a bigger conversation. Des, I think you should go first, because I have you to thank for being Chang-pilled. 
Well, I guess I'll start, um, you know, by, by saying a little bit about why I find his short stories and, and yeah. his, his novellas are just so interesting. So, you know, contemporary sci-fi author, um, very limited output in a sense, like there's two collections of short stories, um, but that's really it so, so far, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, always leaving room and the door open for more. But the reason that I find so many of them so fascinating is because they're each kind of Chang taking what I think is the best possible approach to speculative fiction. He speculates on kind of one particular element of our world or of science or of how our, um, our society is organized. And he, he speculates on what it would be like if that were different or if that were changed in some fashion or if something that isn't true about our society or our world were true. And then he kind of takes this tiny like popcorn kernel of an idea, right? This kind of very specific identified aspect. And he kind of explores it um, and expands it and gets us into all of the nooks and crannies as if that popcorn kernel were expanding, um, you know, having been popped. And then you see kind of that whole world, again, in that speculative um, timeline or, or fashion explored, um, investigated, kind of having the complicated uh, impacts and uh, processes and so forth kind of laid out for you, but still in like a really narratively rich kind of character driven way. And it's, so it's, I don't know, it's just an amazing and complicated and fascinating combination of things that he does pretty much in every story. Yeah, I, I have the exact same experience with Chang, and I have you to thank for introducing me to him. <laughs> uh, a couple of years ago in uh, a bleak winter during a pandemic, you said, oh, if you're done with Dune, you should read Ted Chang. It's really great. And then I did. <laughs> and I've <laughs> gone back many times since. But yeah, this this way that with his short stories, oftentimes he'll take some sort of principle, some sort of like physical principle, and proceed as if it were true and then tell a story on the assumption that is true. So there's much to be said about how that happens in story of your life, but he also does this in a lot of his other short stories. He has one called tower of Babylon where it like assumes the truth of the description of the tower of Babylon and then proceeds from there. And it's gorgeous. He's got another short story called Omphalos where he sort of assumes that it's true that young earth creationism is the case and then proceeds from there. It's really, really incredible. And then one of my favorite short stories of his, uh, hell is the absence of God, like proceeds on the assumption that these angels, uh, exist and God exists. And then, uh, like continues on from there, not making those the sort of centerpiece, but making those the backdrop on which to tell this gorgeous story. So I, I love these short stories. I will like read one and then stop there so I can simmer in for a while before turning to the next one. You can't binge these. It's too yeah. much. No, absolutely. Um, I think Sid, sometimes I feel like you're partial to some of the ones that, um, might be, a little bit more of a religious bent, or at least two of the ones that you mentioned are, but Tang's, I think, methodology is sort of to take almost any kind of metaphysical, if you will, or, or, or right, kind of these ontological presuppositions, and either if they are not true for us in our world, making them true and running with it, as Sid was describing, or sometimes the opposite, right? And so fascinating to see which choices he makes about where to kind of start that kernel of the story. And then again, like the way that he can expand upon that, and not just in sort of, you know, kind of a, kind of the, the, 
the hard science way, like they are hard science sci-fi in some ways, but sometimes the downsides to some quote unquote hard science or science fiction is that you kind of miss the human element or you, you know, you have characters, but they're not super well explored or you have right kind of stand-ins or caricatures or things like that. And that is not the case for Ted Chiang stories. They are like fully, you know, living, breathing human beings who are, who are your like view into that world with that particular difference or, or that particular change having been explored. So I think they're just super fascinating um, because he can both kind of uh, deliver the goods in a, uh, I'm going to say sort of technical sense or mm-hmm. in, a, in again, kind of exploring kind of in a systematic fashion, whatever um, element that he's exploring. And at the same time, the, the sort of human element, right? The kind of like, what does this mean for for people? What does this mean for if you lived in that world? What does this mean for how you would understand yourself if you lived in that world, et cetera? So I think this discussion, I mean, it touches on two things for me. A, three. One is like, I am famously a, not a major science famous to myself and Danielle, like not a major science fiction person, but like all of the Chang that I've read has totally worked for me. Um, so A, I just, I, I appreciate this as a kind of an entree for me. And secondly, like there are kind of two different directions that this discussion pulls me in, in terms of, all right, where else is this like method um, show up in things that like we might be engaged in in our lives. And one is uh, a not quite great book's favorite, the show Young Pope which like <laughs> proceeds as if certain elements of Catholic dogma and metaphysics were just true mm-hmm. and then asks after what that world would look like in an mm-hmm. extremely character driven humanistic way. Like oh, it's one of the most great. <laughs> it's one of the most fucked up and one of the most humanistic shows at the same time. Um, so there's that. And there's uh, an obscene amount of hours of me and my friend Regan <laughs> podcasting about the young Pope that exists. And then secondly, and this I think gets us to something we wanted to talk about, that it strikes me in the conversation you two are having that there's something very, if not political theory, teaching political theory about the way you describe Ted Chang. Because like oftentimes when I'm teaching, my instruction is like, okay, we're going to critique whomever it is we're reading, but we also like want to proceed as if some part of their analysis or some part of the philosophy they're building or some part of the standpoint or lens or vantage that they're constructing for us. Let's proceed as if that were true and then see where that takes us and see where it goes. And like, I think a question for us on this podcast, and I know one that you two have spent a lot of time thinking about is like this notion of political science fiction mm-hmm. and kind of thinking about like, what are, what is the form or the genre of that? And how might like our two texts for today fit or not fit in that? Uh, genre, if we can call it that. Yeah. Before I sort of get to the to this question that you ended on, John, I want to kind of add something maybe to the to the prior point you were making about when you know when you or I, I want to say when all of us are teaching political theory, how there's various ways in which we ask students to engage in those texts, or we think about you know let's run with this as if it were the case. But I want to kind of add another one to that, which is that sometimes when we're reading kind of older texts, for example, um, my question to students is often also. So how has this text shaped our world, right? And so, you know, you're reading, uh, you know, you're reading a quote unquote classic and it's a classic for contested and complicated reasons and so on, but they often are works that have shaped you know, our understanding of politics, or they have given us sort of fundamental categories we still work with, or they have, you know, sort of pushed uh, conversation in politics in certain directions. Um, And so for me, then, for, for texts like that, the question is, you know, this 
can we think about this in some ways almost as a work of fiction at one point, mm -hmm. right? That then has had an impact in the world. So like, why is it that, you know, for example, uh, you know, property is one of the fundamental things that we understand the function of government to be to protect, right? Or, you know, X, Y, and Z, right? Why John, are... Fuck that guy. Like, uh, yeah, you know, I wasn't going to mention his <laughs> yeah, name because yeah, I know exactly. Sid, Sid has a particular antipathy. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Um, right? But like thinking about that almost as like once upon a time that was maybe less the case than it is today or, you know, once upon a time like these classics weren't yet as big kind of in the political understanding or imagination as they are now. And they're effect has almost also been to kind of, if you will, explode into that political space that we occupy, for better or for worse. Yeah, I think that's super fascinating. I haven't taught this text, although I would love to at some point. Uh, but Which I, one, John Locke or this, or Jet Jack? No, no, you can <laughs> get John Locke the fuck out of here. <laughs> I, I've taught for nine years and I still haven't taught Locke and that's not going to change. <laughs> I know, that's why I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Ted Chang first. Um, because it, it, it feels like it pulls in two different directions for me. Like on the one hand, I feel like it's a really interesting way to, it makes me think of Foucault, I think. Where it's like, how can this piece? Uh, well, yeah, I know. I, I uh, hit the Foucault button like ten minutes into the pod, but <laughs> right on um, time. It was preordained. Doing <laughs> it in within fourteen minutes. It, it's it's like, how can we be sympathetic to people who like experience the world through different epistemes or at least different metaphysical and ontological commitments? Right. Yeah, absolutely. How can we like? Think about them as humans who have these needs, desires, and dreams, but different like orientations towards the world, and like think about them as as human as we are, and as like worthy of our sympathy and grace as we might be, right? So like that's one part of it, and I think that it from like a from a genre um, standpoint, I think that a lot of contemporary political theory, or at least again, I'm telling on myself, a lot of the kind of political theory that I teach is this sort of debunking tear the mask away, what's underneath uh, sort of stuff. And for me, Ted Chang feels like it pushes in the other direction in a really, I think, generative and compelling way where he's like, rather than the big reveal at the end, what we're going to do is not disorient you, but start you from a place of like concreteness and then build out from there. And that's disorienting in, I think, a different way. Yeah. In a sort of what is this new uh, vision that we're trying to build out rather than what's underneath the vision that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting, too. Kind of the, the way that reading certain kinds of political science fiction or politically inflected or politically relevant science fiction can kind of almost be the counterpoint to how we sometimes approach thinking about um, what political theory can do for us in our world. Well, the way that you're describing Chang here like makes me think of Eve Sedgwick, right? Like it's a, what, what are the reparative readings that um, right. political science fiction might open us up to that are foreclosed by the more paranoid readings of a lot of critical theory or critical political theory as we might call it. Yeah. I mean, I've thought quite a bit about sort of what science or science fiction as a genre, and then I'll get maybe more specifically to political science fiction. And um, just from here on out, let's say like, this is a spoilers pod for both the novella and the film. From here oh, on yeah. Yes, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. So science fiction, I think, done well is a mirror for us, right? Or a spe maybe speculative fiction more generally. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to have sort of that element of a scientific difference or, or development or advancement or something like that. But speculative fiction, again, kind of takes something, speculates on it, and in so doing, reflects back to us where we are, 
that is different from where it takes us. Um, and, you know, I think that done well can be really instructive in both of the ways that I think Sid just talked about as a demasking or as an uncovering or as a, you know, deeper investigation of who we are, what, what is our current situation, et cetera, and how we came to have that be the case, but also where that might take us, right? Where certain choices or certain orientations or certain predilections, or even to the point of like policy preferences, right? Yeah. Quite honestly, might take us. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is science fiction or speculative fiction to me generally. Again, I will say when done well, there's of course like space operas and, you know, all of these kinds of things that are maybe not quite doing that at the core of what they're about. Um, but then you sort of add the the political descriptor, you add, add political science fiction and the pun that that entails. <laughs> and it's science fiction that does all of the things I just described, but has a sensitivity to, or has like political questions almost at its center, right? Where the author um, or, the, or the creator, if we're talking about movies or films or whatever, um, has chosen to make this part of the thematic that they're interested in, um, or, or there is relevance to the thematic that they are articulating two political questions that we're interested in. What goes in the political science fiction canon or the like course in speech that I believe you two have generated? Oh man, so many things. This course <laughs> yeah. is going to have to be like years long. <laughs> Great. As, as the best right. courses are. In our, in our collective assemblage brains, at least. Exactly. I mean, definitely Chang, right? Uh, we've got some left-handed darkness, dispossessed. Terrible in the summer. What else does? Yeah, I mean, I, I would sort of rep even even more of Ursula K. K. Le Guin's uh, both short stories, novels, and novellas. Um, I think that she is a sci-fi author that definitely has. I mean, I think that she might put it more as an anthropological um, orientation, maybe. Sometimes I think she's being more overtly political kind of in her own terminology than other times, but I think that she has a sensitivity and an interest in, and that is represented in her stories and her writing of, again, society, who we are, right? How we organize ourselves, um, how we understand ourselves, these kinds of questions. Um, so yeah, definitely seconding all of the things that Sid said. Um, there are really interesting questions, um, you know, of race and otherness, for example, in Parable of the Sower, um, Octavia Butler, as Sid mentioned, but some of her other works as well, uh, the Dawn series um, and so forth. Um, N.K. Jemison probably is someone that I would throw into the mix. She's um, more, you know, more contemporary or even more recent in terms of, of her writing um, and is still actively producing, of course. Um, those are some of the big ones that come to mind. Uh, there's probably something to be said for going back to kind of some of what has become to be like sci-fi classics. But Dune. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Dune raises both like ecological yeah. questions, questions of, you know, empire in a particular way. Um, obviously questions of, of kind of um, relationships between communities or understandings of their own communities, things like that. Warfare, of course, and, you know, right. and space travel and, you know, all of this other stuff. Um, yeah, I don't know. Those are, those are some good places to start at least. Um, but when we've thought about this before, we were also thinking about pairing like written works with films. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot to be done with adaptations of particular works or even just pairing a film that has some element that is, that raises a similar question as to, as, as a novel might, or as a novella or short story might. Yeah. Doing our part in the longstanding tradition of theory ship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we love to see that. Um, yeah. I mean, so Dune is an interesting like case study here. So I, for us today, like I've not read 
the books have seen the movie and like that's Denis Villeneuve also right mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. he's, there's something about like political science fiction that he seems to click with at least on the basis of thinking about Arrival and the two parts of Dune which apparently now might be three parts of Dune Mm-hmm. Well, okay, John, I have a question for you, uh, which is what was the experience of watching Dune like if you haven't read the book? Because I I can't imagine that, that it was much more than just fucking vibes, desert vibes. Uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> <you know. laughs> I was, I was like well prepared to like watch it as someone who hadn't read the books, like had listened to podcasts and read stuff like here are things that might be helpful to know going into it if you're not familiar um, with the, with the books themselves. But like, I thought as a self-contained film, I thought it totally worked. Like I didn't feel like I was lacking in anything. And I think it was more than just vibes, even though like we have all heard the Saltburn pot, like vibes I'm, I'm extremely interested in. Like that's, that's affect theory gets carried over to uh, film and TV quote unquote criticism um, is like, just give me the vibes. But I thought, I thought it was compelling on any level you wanted to analyze it. Well, from somebody who had not, read um the novels on which it's based that's good to hear i also feel like dune at this point you know has been so influential in other works that i'm wondering maybe not for you specifically john but i'm wondering if sort of like enough is known about dune or enough of sort of like the ethos of dune or something like that or, or references from dune have been incorporated into other works that like the stakes and what the questions are and things like that might make more sense even if you haven't read the novel um than for a movie and then for a book like like you know no one has read or something like that or a film that like no one has referenced or things like that yeah how did the film work for the two of you who are familiar with the underlying material i think relatively well but i think that it's for me a definite definite example of like Villeneuve having made, I think, very good and cogent choices in the adaptation. But it's just one of those examples of the book just having so much more depth and detail and the stakes are clearer and maybe even more sort of like inventive in the way that certain things are described or certain kind of features of that world um, are articulated that that are just harder to bring across on, in, on screen, right, in a film. So yeah. I think, well, but... Uh, it's not for me an example of where like the both stand on their own as amazing things. I think the movie is dependent on the book. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that like, for me, there's something telling about the fact that Dune one is like, like four inches thick and Dune two through six are like 300 pages, right? Like Dune one has so much world building. He goes on these like, 50, 60, 70 page excursions about how the grass has changed into this other form of vegetation and these like little arrakis mice like feed in this little ecosystem. Like there's so much like love and attention paid to the world building and the relationship between the Fremen and the ecosystem there that I think makes the book so deeply engrossing that you couldn't possibly portray in a movie without making it like 20 hours long. Well, I'd be interested in that version. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I would do it, right? Like in the meditative, like, (laughs) okay, this installation of the film is the vegetation, the mice, and the Fremen as they relate to the, like, plant life of uh, Arrakis. Right, this would be like space opera, but, like, in the Wagnerian style, it's like 12 (laughs) hours long, you know? I will say the relationship between the the book Dune and the film is, is one that 
to me is not paralleled in Ted Chang's story and the oh, film. Desiree, keeping us on track. Oh, look <laughs> so at me. disciplined. Um, insofar as like, I, I think the movie, like the film Arrival and the short story are quite different in some ways, even maybe not just in genre in terms of, of course, if the medium is different, um, but in terms of the emphasis that it places on certain parts of the story, the things that are pulled into focus, the things that are at the center of each of them. But I actually think that the both of them are very good on their own. Like, I don't think that for me, this is an example of what I was saying about Dune, where one is sort of dependent on the other, um, at least to me. I think that the choices that Villeneuve made and how the film is quite different in a lot of ways from the short story stand on their own. And I think they work and where the two works diverge. I like both of them. And I think they both have interesting things to say, maybe Mm -hmm. especially in their differences. I appreciate that point. And I mean, and maybe there's, this is a way into kind of talking about them both more directly. So I think the plan is, more to talk and organize thematically and we'll go back and forth between the novella and the film. And then Mm -hmm. maybe at the end of the main discussion, talk about some of those adaptation choices that seem reasonable to all. That sounds good. Let's do it. What makes each of these two works political science fiction, if they are political science fiction, that's in very different ways, if they are, it's, it strikes me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I would say that one thing that, you know, obviously is, is common to both of them. So, so not sort of going down the divergent paths of each, but, but staying at what they both have in common. Of course, both are focused on a question about kind of language and how language functions and how it um, either helps us or shapes our understanding of the world. And so, you know, to me, that is a direct answer to your question, because the way that language functions for me is political. It's political in the sense that, you know, it is a a complex process that many people are involved with, right? In terms of shaping language, in terms of understanding how language gets used, in terms of creating sort of new expressions or interrogating expressions we have, right? All of these kinds of things related to language um, in a a really broad sense, to me, are political because they involve people um, and they involve people kind of maybe unconsciously and maybe not uh, cogently making decisions, taking actions, you know, in small steps that shape kind of the bigger picture in which we, we operate. And I think that's true for both the novella and the film. So that is kind of the core of why I think for me that both of them are political and have political implications. I think there's more to be said, of course, for how they both do it in more specific detail, but I'll start with that. Yeah, I think that for me, the thing that makes them political science fiction is that they both have really interesting things to say about our ability to exercise our free will and uh, to what extent that's constrained. And I think they handle those in two really, really different ways, right? So um, we'll talk, I think, in more detail about exactly what we think is different between the adaptation and the novella soon, but like, there's a certainty with which um, actions are taken in the novella that is the centerpiece of the film or is treated differently, even though it's a centerpiece of the film. Right. And beyond that, there's also the question of like what the military is doing. I think in the novella, the military, they just seem sort of like bumbling fools, um, which is not to say that they're not in the film and generally, but in the film, they're much more hawkish. Right. And I think it raises this, this age old question of what, what should one do to uh, be secure in the face of uh, like unknown intentions, right? Like we can Absolutely. throw this all the way back to Thucydides, the beginnings of like Western political theory, at least is like anxiety about the unknown, 
I think structures our political decisions and like what we do in order to uh, satisfy our like base human needs, or at least um, I wouldn't even say base, right? Our higher human needs of um, of safety and security. Yeah, I mean, this is a pretty well-worn trope in kind of um, political science fiction conversations, you know, this idea that in order for humans to understand who they are and their relationships to each other, uh, they need an external entity to kind of compare themselves to. So this kind of in-group, out-group dynamic, this us-them that helps to define who the us is and so forth. And, you know, there's um, a, a well-known book in in political science that is about science fiction that sort of hypothesizes aliens coming to earth and that really being the impetus for all of these kinds of questions to be revisited or answered in a new way. Um, and I think the film raises that question, right? The film raises the question of like, what would the different nation states or the different political entities do in the face of all of them kind of having, you know, an alien artifact land in their territory. And I'm just kind of emphasizing, you know, the particularity of like where the art alien artifacts land and who in our with them and who interacts with them and they are representatives you know or, or people hired by nation states and so forth and then the, the movie definitely raises the question of like how does that politics work out how does that sort of what we understand is kind of you know our everyday kind of politics nation states leaders you know uh questions about military questions about inter- quote international or intercommunity relations and things yeah. like that the kind of geopolitics of it is definitely very present in the film there are kind of two things there that really stand out to me and one is like so in politics and vision right Wolin spends that first chapter being like here are just a bunch of characteristics of like political theory and mm-hmm. one of them is about political theory as something or canonical political theory as something that emerges at moments of crises, mm-hmm. right? And there's mm-hmm. something about how the multi-level crisis that is being depicted in both novella and film, where like, yes, there is the kind of more obvious, are we including them as the aliens, as friends or enemies? Like, where does our, like, that? where do our boundaries get constructed and our communities get mm-hmm. uh, circumscribed in the mm-hmm. ways that both of you have addressed? So there's like that kind of most more obvious level, which of course, like, gets to fundamental questions about like, what is the political anyway? But what both of you are also pointing us to is that there's something about linguistic and epistemological crisis that makes this really generative Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. it connects those more obvious like political crises in the way we would kind of colloquially use that phrase with the like questions about and this then connects to like can we even represent what this what the novella and the film are about which i think we want to get into at some point as well so there's something about like the the multi-level crises that are really at work for me mm-hmm. and that like this goes back to what you two are identifying as as part of like ching's kind of uh aptitude which is that it's a really serious and like far-reaching engagement without like taking cheap shots at how crisis ridden this might be mm-hmm. like there's something right. slightly matter of fact to his writing mm-hmm. that i really deeply appreciated like it's mm-hmm. incredibly dramatic but not melodramatic yeah not like sensational is maybe yes. the word that yeah. i was thinking mm-hmm. i mean melodramatic mm-hmm. i think also also hits yeah. that point um but yeah it's he doesn't sort of like he doesn't amp up sort of artificially, if you will, you know, the, the effects of the crisis or something like that. Like he, he represents it and then sort of lets it sit. And for you as the reader or as the viewer of the film, um, to sort of realize 
oh, oh my God, oh crap, oh shit, you know, like the, these right. are the possible implications of, of what this means um, without kind of hitting you over the head as the reader or in the in the film, you know, as the viewer with like, oh my God, you know, uh, kind of the, the banshee screaming chicken with your head <laughs> cut off reaction to like the world ending, right? That's yeah. not the vibe um, in, in either of the works. And, but at the same time, it has that heft. You know that there are stakes, like they become clear. You are steeped in, in the context um, enough to sort of realize that. And those are kind of also, you know, one of the things about the power of Ted Chang's writing is that those kind of smaller revelations as you read his stories just kind of build and build and build to the point where you then see the bigger picture or, or see various bigger pictures in some stories. And the grandeur of those bigger pictures yeah. is really impressive, right? And is really sort of impactful without being sensational, without being melodramatic. Like they yeah, pr- I, it pr- it produces sensations for the reader without being sensational. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I, sorry. I so that is, no, no, you're, you're fine. I, I, this reminds me of one of the things that Desiree told me when she introduced me to Ted Chang is that he's like, a technical writer uh, during mm-hmm. the day, right? He like writes these, uh, you know, manuals for printers or I don't know the fuck, I, uh, you know, like what he's <laughs> up to right now, but uh, like his economy of writing, so mm-hmm. incredibly precise and in a way that doesn't flatten up the gravitas of what's happening. And I think that that's like this really powerful aspect of us getting to sort of like walk with Louise as she figures out how conversing at Heptapod B is changing her understanding of the world, mm-hmm. that I was surprised that they were able to convey, but in a different way in the film. Because I do think that those are significantly different, but that they didn't uh, fail to do so in the film. Yeah, I want to maybe just use that example, Sid, as as an example of kind of those small revelations. I mean, they're big revelations, right? Again, in the end. So I'm not trying to make this a, a, a small part of both the story or the film. It's huge. But in the novel or the novella, you have kind of the beginning is structured to have interspersed sections. So one section will be about what you understand her to be doing with the translations, with being, you know, in the field, quote unquote. Um, The other sections that are interspersed separate from those sections are then these, what at first the reader tends to often understand as memories, memories of her interactions with her daughter, memories of her daughter growing up, memories, right? And at one point, at a particular point in the novella, you then realize that they're not memories in the way that we think about them as in the past, right? We, in our common understanding, of course, think about as memories of, as having happened prior to the point at which you're remembering them or invoking them or bringing them up. And the way that this, the novella is structured and the film, I think, is as well to some extent, is that these are interspersed and you then as the viewer, as the reader, come to find out that, again, there's a revelation at some point, a realization that tends to happen, that these are not past. These are not past tense memories, right? These are not invocations of things that have happened temporally before the things that you are sort of seeing and assuming are the the today, you know, are the present day. And that is a, a huge example for me of that kind of revelation, right? There's a number of layered revelations, and that one comes to, of course, be a huge part of what both the story and the film are about. 
but he doesn't, but Ted Chang or Ted uh, Denis Villeneuve in the film, they don't tell you that, right? They don't say, oh, wait, actually, she's not remembering things about her relationship with her daughter in the past. Mm -hmm. She is, you know, uh, remembering, quote unquote, things that will happen in the future, but because of her, you know, changed perception of time, her changed perception of, of her world, she is able to kind of access those or have those quote unquote memories now, presently, mm -hmm. intersecting with this timeline as well, or this space in her life. So that to me as like a revelation is something that I was really struck with when I reread the story um, in anticipation of this conversation. Yeah. Chang makes really effective use of the fact that there is a reader reading his stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because future memories or whatever we want to call them um, mm -hmm. of Louise Banks's character in the novella, like it's always addressed to you as mm -hmm. if she is addressed to the daughter. But like, of course, the you who is actually reading the text is us as the reader. So just like, a, mm -hmm. you know, it's a banal observation on the one hand, but he does such a wonderful job at like taking advantage of the fact that there's a reader interacting with the text. And like, again, at the level of language, like mm -hmm. what is, we are being addressed, even though we're not being directly addressed by mm -hmm. Louise Banks, by the novella itself. And I just think that like that, that serves that kind of broader vision that he has for the like, uh, cultivating us into the questions about knowledge or memory or free will or volition or temporality that he's interested in. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that point, you know, kind of brings us, brings me back to that idea of the, the malleability that Ted Chang um, is, is showing language to have, if that makes sense, right? That like, depending on the actual characteristics and structure and maybe even development and sort of history of particular linguistic systems, in this case, heptapod kind of compared implicitly always to, you know, human languages, human natural languages, um, this kind of malleability, like if there are different features and characteristics of that language, then a speaker um, or, or someone who understands and uses that language may themselves then be able to experience different characteristics of our world. And so that's, you know, where the, the sort of time element to me comes in. It's, it is a novella and a story about time and our perception of time and a different perception of time than humans have access to. But to me, that is rooted in the question of language. And so, you know, one of the things that often gets talked about with the novella and is, you know, kind of referenced in the, in the film as well is, you know, Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, right? It's kind of taken in its strongest formulation and you know, debunked at this point, or or at least uh, criticized in various ways, but it, taken in its strongest formulation, the hypothesis at one point was that one's natural language that one learns first, so one's first language significantly shapes, or some people would even say, you know, is determinative of the categories you have to understand the world. Um, and so, the relationship between, you know, language and the worldview that you then end up with is, is what that hypothesis is centrally wrestling with. Now, here too, in our world, <laughs> the superior Whorf hypothesis has been criticized. It has kind of been whittled down. The determinism has been shown not to be the case. And, you know, like it, it isn't really the going theory and hasn't been, you know, in, in academic practice for, for a number of decades. But here too, I think Ted Chang kind of takes that, thinks about what would be like if that were true, how can we think about a language that is so different from ours that it really tests the limits of that hypothesis being true, i.e. he introduces an alien language and then runs with it, right? Um, and so to me, like that, that is a, a core kind of set of the questions that interest me about both the novella and then the film as well. 
Okay, well, on the, okay, I was, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say this, Desiree. You're our resident uh, language expert, and I, I want to like blunder in here and hear about the Alsats because I think that the thing that is exploited in the novella is is different from the thing that's exploited in the film, right? So, in the film, they actually mention the saber wharf hypothesis. Um, this has been like the framework through which I think a lot of people have analyzed the film. Like if we take it to its logical conclusion, what does that world look like? And it turns out that Louise learning heptapod B, uh, like gives her the ability to like interact with the world in a different way and like ends up culminating in sort of power that she's able to use, uh, to get information from general Shang in order to save the world as it were. Right. But like in the novella, Saber Wharf doesn't come up and it's it's not the principle that Ted Chang really sits with for a long time. It's um, Fairmont's principle. And I, I think that these are importantly different because Fairmont's principle, uh, just that like if uh, uh, um, how do I say this? a ray of light will always take the um, the fastest route to its um, end point. Right. The shortest and specifically. The shortest. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, it's, mean, about, like, <laughs> it's about distance. <laughs> well, no, but I like space and time, space slash time, distance and length. Yeah. Okay. Go no, for but, it. But, no, no, no. The, the tension here though is like, w- like one of the issues is that it has to know where it's going to culminate in order to figure out what that line is going to be, which is why there's that fundamental tension between like, how can it know that without um, not already knowing it's tell us. Right. So, that ends up being the fundamental tension in the novella that from the point of view of a human, it feels like uh, an impossibility because we understand uh, our causality as like requiring uh, knowledge of where it's going to culminate where he's like, no, actually uh, it operates as if it's teleological, like it's purposive rather than causal. And if that's the case, right, if those are equivalent, then the world is this like perfectly uh, ambiguous, I think, um, set of events that you can understand both causally and teleologically. And if that's the case, the heptapod B, like it's not the saber wharf hypothesis that is like changing the world in the sort of strong way that it is in the film, but it's rather that the truth of the Fermat uh, principle means that through learning heptapod B, you can begin to see it in this purposive way rather than in this causal way. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. Um, I I think that my take on the novella is only slightly different from yours, which is that I think that Ted Chang is very uh, skilled in the story in weaving both the linguistic path to that realization and the physics, right? Like the Fermat's principal path to that realization together. So Louise is the character who is the linguist and um, in the story, the physicist has a different name than in the film, but let's just call him the physicist, right? He, you know, figures out kind of the Fermat's or why the attempt to communicate with the aliens about basic math is not working very well. And they keep kind of coming to the same stopping points. And it's human um, mathematical formulations and physical principles that are based on causality, on a sort of temporally sequenced causality. So anyway, that's how the the physicist uh, character comes to, you know, Fermat's principles sort of being a, a key question here. But again, I think that in the novella, both paths end up leading to the same conclusion or intertwined. I do agree with you, Sid, that in the novella, the physical principles or again, the sort of math-based principles 
are more present than in the film. They're almost set kind of a side story in the film. Like the, the physicist character, um, you know, is, is there <laughs> and is there for important reasons, but isn't like his perspective and his understanding of the, the alien language isn't really explored in the film very much. Um, so again, I agree with you, I think on the bigger points, and I definitely agree with you with your analysis of how Fermat's principle and, and kind of those questions work to reveal things in the novella. But I think that the novella still kind of intersects both the linguistic and the kind of physical or math principles roots to revelations, whereas the film prioritizes the linguistic one. Yeah, I think that 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 choice ends up being important for the question of volition and how it's treated differently in the novella as it is in the movie, right? Yeah, 100%. Because in the novella, um, once Louise sort of understands that conversing in heptapod B allows her to sort of like take a view of the universe in this teleological or propulsive way rather than in a causal way allows her to act as if she is bringing into being the world that she already knows is going to happen, which elicits this questioning about whether or not it's meaningless to talk about free will. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the film, there's still, I think, uh, not that disposition towards free will because she's always like, what the fuck's about to happen? Um, how do I like, how do I save the world as it were? And it all, like in order for the film to feel like it has some gravitas, there needs to be the possibility of her like doing otherwise or failing or the heptapods, like not being able to adequately convey that, uh, like something bad will happen in 3000 years if the humans don't make the right choice now. Mm-hmm. But that same gravity like isn't the culmination of the novella, right? Where right. uh Louise is even saying like the physicist like in the in the novella, Gary and I, it was this it was as if we were reading from a script and we already knew what the like final act was going to be. Whereas it's like the opposite of what's going on in the film, where like up until the moment that she makes the call to General Shang, she doesn't know what's going to happen. Right. And there is this feeling that uh she's like um, backed into a corner. And I think that it's like, you know, partially part of the storytelling in order to say, like, perhaps she's getting to the point where she understands the world in a purposive way a little bit later to cause some of that dramatic, um, excitement. But I do think that they end up in this sort of like different disposition towards, um, whether or not she thinks that she has volition. That is really, uh, like a theme in the novella in a way that it felt like a, a danger in the film. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I take a lot of your points to heart. I'm not sure that I would maybe agree with characterizing them as going in as opposite directions on this question. I do think that, that I agree with you, though, and, and, and appreciate the nuances that you're drawing out between the differences between the two. I think that one of the other differences that really hits home and why I mentioned much earlier in the conversation that the two works are almost different genres for me. And again, not just genres in the sense that one is a novella and one is a film, right? Different media, but different genres. Because to me, the novella is bookended by, is structured by, is centrally kind of framed around the question of Louise's relationship with the fact of her having a daughter. And I'll maybe explicate that in just a moment. Um, but in contrast to that, the film, I do think in the bigger picture takes on again, these kind of geopolitical stakes, right? These saving the world, the fate of the world kind of questions. Um, and so in one sense, you could say the film is more overtly political because those are some of the main themes and, and some of the main questions and stakes in the film. 
again, there's reasons I disagree with why the other is also political. Um, but get, kind of getting back to the novella again, the reason that the novella's title is story of your life is because it is the story of the daughter's life. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm not saying anything. I don't think the two of, you know, but just to explicate this a bit, the novella starts with ends with is structured by the question, actually the decision. And here the, the kind of point about volition comes back. The decision that Louise uh, and Nelson, the character that's the physicist in the novella make to have a child. And the decision is a fraught one because Louise's ability to understand what happens in the future to this child is that it suffers a tragic death. And that sense of loss from knowing that her daughter is going to suffer a tragic death and yet still making the decision in the moment, in a particular moment with her husband to have a baby at all, right? In the first place is the dramatic element of the novella in a way that it is not the center of the drama in the film. Right. And so it's still the question of volition. It's still the question of how quote unquote future memories implicate decisions kind of in the present, right. All of these kinds of things that thematics that we've been talking about, but the thing about which there are stakes, I think are quite different in the novella versus the film. That's super interesting. I like, you know, I, <laughs> number one, I think that Gary needs to read some like crip theory or something. So that he can, <laughs> uh, like just understand that 25 good years, is like a good life. Um, <laughs> But beyond that, I think that in terms of the title, it's it like struck me when I was rereading the novella that the word arrival is on the second page and it refers to the arrival of the daughter, not mm-hmm. the arrival of the heptapods, mm-hmm. which one would assume mm-hmm. would be the case in the movie. Mm-hmm. Right? And I, I think that like the wrestling with um what it means to have a daughter knowing or at least understanding the universe in the way that she does is incredibly fascinating to me because there's a couple of moments in which she talks about her baby daughter as like in an enviable state because she is a baby and does not yet worry about the um, uh, consequences of her actions. Right. And I think this implies that there's some sort of tragedy to understanding the universe unfolding in a causal way as opposed to in a purposive way, right? Like if, if, when she said like, you're, it's, it's enviable to not understand the world yet in this like cursed human way. I was just like, Oh, you know, this is, it's like Oedipus, right? Um, <laughs> like we're like dealing with the anxiety of causality and trying to get out of it and doing everything that we can in order to like escape these human, bo- um, mm-hmm. human bounds, but end up doing to ourselves all sorts of violence that need not be the case right so danielle is that, thrilled at yeah. that okay good well, <laughs> shout out to danielle here in spirit mm-hmm. there's i mean this i don't think this theory works but run with me there's something about how like the moving the fact of the daughter's birth in some ways like the opening scene of the novella is the final scene of the film. It's the let's make a baby, right? And Mm -hmm. all that that contains that you two have explicated. But there's, like, something in which that adaptational choice, like, actually mm, illustrates or, like, fights against the 
a lack of ability to represent like a teleological heptapod B way of thinking, because it's like, it actually doesn't matter whether that's the opening scene or the closing scene. Like they have always already been like projected towards that particular telos. And then I think locating like the tragedy as functioning somewhat different in the two of them as a result of that placement, even if there's a certain like symmetry or similarity or like variational principle, right? Because like at one point when they're talking about Fermat's theorem, um, Donnelly says, you know, that like it's actually a minimum or a maximum, right? So it's like, a, the, we could say it's like the beginning or the end, like, are they that different from one another? Mm-hmm. So that's like the bonkers theory, but there's, there's a shift in the tragedy because there's the like, that there's the Oedipal tragedy of like existence and knowledge that's in the novella. And there's mm-hmm. something about like the way in which the film shifts the like locus of some of the tragedy a little bit more to Jeremy Renner's character of the physicist. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. in like that, the fact that like that is the thing that will also break apart the union mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. the two of them. Yep. I think that gets heightened more in the film for like obvious, like filmic Hollywood, like, you know, the heteronormativity reasons like that that would get played up in a in a hollywood film but like there's something about placing that at the end and like one of the closing scenes being about um jeremy renner and uh amy allen's characters like getting together right Mm -hmm. that's a central thing that also happens at the end that happens earlier in the novella that like slots it more into like uh scripts or narratives that we know about like love and romance but now we're doing it from this question of epistemology and language which is mm-hmm. just a like totally fascinating way to both indulge in but also kind of like explode from within some of those conventional tropes yeah no absolutely like the 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 thing that you started off with was like the placement of that piece right that the the decision of the two of them to have a baby that then obviously is their daughter and then you know she suffers the fate that she does and and they as parents then suffer the fate that they do right like the placement of that element i think you put really well like the choice of that in the novella versus the the film having these kinds of consequences for where the dramatic tension or where the dramatic um results fall i think that's that's really um really well put and really well explicated um to me, one of the other elements I was thinking about, John, as you were explaining that, is the difference—the difference between again the physicist character Jeremy Renner in the film and Amy Allen's character, or the two of them in the, in the novel as well. Like the difference in knowledge, because it seems to me that some of the dramatic tension also comes from the fact that Louise masters the heptapod B to the extent where this affects her her understanding of her, her life, right? Like her memories and what counts as a memory and to what extent she can quote unquote, see future memories or perceive them and so forth. I'm hesitating a little bit because I'm wondering if there's a similarity or differences between the film and the novella on this. But to me, one of the questions is like, does the physicist character also master heptapod B sufficiently Mm. to have that kind of foreknowledge? I think the answer is no. Right. Because part of the dramatic tension comes from the fact that she knows the fate of their daughter and still makes the decision in the moment, in that particular moment to have a daughter at all, to make a baby, to have, you know, a child uh, with her, her partner. um, And that he doesn't know that. And so, you know, not just a question, I think that Sid sort of introduced of like, how much knowledge do we have of our world, of our future of, you know, what will be the effect of a particular cause. 
generating drama or generating tension, but also the differences between different characters having that knowledge. She knows, Louise knows. Louise makes the decision despite that knowledge or in light of that knowledge or with regard to that knowledge to still, you know, have a child. Um, and then the, again, the physicist, the Jeremy Renner character, um, seems to not know the fate of that child. And so seems at least in the novella to be betrayed by that. Um, I don't know. That's my read. I think it's, you know, this isn't something that is maybe spelled out as explicitly in, in either, but. Yeah. I, I, I love that setup because it helps me to think about, uh, the physicist and Louise, uh, and their relationship to like what happens depending on how much free will you think you have. Right. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. like when in the novella, they're talking about the heptapods, um, experiencing the world in a teleological way, uh, Chang writes that they don't feel, um, that there's like this loss of free will. They instead act as if they're bringing chronology into existence. Mm -hmm. Um, and, that, but it's like, also not coercion, specifically. Right, it's also right. not coercion. Right. Um, and I think that, like, for someone like Jeremy Renner, the physicist, right, uh, if his only way to understand the universe is through this um, this causal, like, lens, then his knowledge of the end is experienced as, like, pain, right? Where for Louise, mm -hmm. even though she knows the end point, there's still this question of, like, what what will it be like? So when Louise's world is this amalgam of human and heptapod, she can know the end, but still knowing the end, like have the sympathetic disposition towards the way that it plays out, right? The human part in the context of heptapod part, mm -hmm. which I think like frees her of a particular sort of pain that mm -hmm. Jeremy Renner or um, Gary is like cursed to as a human who only understands the world in these causal terms. Mm -hmm. And moreover that, and this is in the film rather than the novella, although I think that what you just described said is true of Louise in both, in both texts in the film, it's Jeremy Renner's character of Gary, like who then further blames Louise Banks for like mm -hmm. taking away his free will or like it's the, the levels on which he is stuck in causal human thinking and temporality and epistemological like capacities like further assigns more moral blame and responsibility to mm -hmm. Louise's characters as a result of like not having that projective or teleological um, sort of thinking. It makes me realize how much or how subtly and how in multiple, how multiply like both the novella and the film in different ways, like draw out the multiple levels on which that, uh, challenge to our ways of knowing the world, like how deeply that can affect somebody mm -hmm. and the stakes that it raises for like human mm -hmm. decision-making, if decision-making mm -hmm. is even a relevant category anymore, mm -hmm. or like the bringing about the chronology or putting it in place because the like bringing the chronology into existence, like that is what, that is what agency comes to be, right? When we are mm -hmm. in a teleological world of heptapod B mm -hmm. and that's a totally different, like notion than the more um like voluntaristic like free will maximizing um more conventional like liberal but not just liberal notions of agency are and so there's something about like gary's character understanding himself to have been robbed of his agency not necessarily like by the future or the chronology or the universe or the world but very specifically by louise in the film
Yeah, I think that's really well put, John. Um, again, th- those kind of nuances of of free will, of agency, of volition that that you're, I think, so eloquently pointing out. Those have, of course, their their roots in the story. And then again, thinking about kind of how those are translated or adapted or shifted to the film draws out even more complexity, if that makes sense, right? Like yeah. there's complexity and layers kind of already within the the novella. Um, and then kind of thinking additionally, almost in a different dimension than how those also play out in the film. I know that's fascinating. Um, and again, maybe specifically because they don't play out in the exact same ways. Again, if the film were just sort of a, you know, uh, structural contextual thematic recreation of the novella, those kinds of nuance nuances, or at least differences, slight differences in approach to these same questions might not, right. Might not be present to us, might not be something that we think about. Um, I don't know, not to take anything yeah. away from just the novella, but it is interesting to right. think about the two of them and, and brings out even more. Yeah. I think this is like, this is one of the moments where I want to do, you know, hats off to Villeneuve here because I, after watching the movie, I went back and looked at the novella and the divorce isn't actually ever explained, right? Like after watching Mm -hmm. the film, I think we sort of bring back this idea that it happened on the basis of her knowing that uh, the daughter unnamed in the novella was going to die, but that's not actually said. And I think that's a sort of like stroke of genius in the film. And also like in order to heighten that, it has to be, that she dies younger and of a rare disease yeah. rather than in the novella where she's 25 and dies rock climbing. Like, yeah. I don't know, that could have happened to me. Um, <laughs> and that would have been just like a fine enough life, I guess. Right. But, <laughs> um, like <laughs> in, in the film, it's like, Oh, he's leaving because Louise knows that she's going to die in her teens from a rare disease. And to me, that feels like it highlights the stakes of, the like knowledge and volition uh, tension that is central to the human experience. Whereas in the novella, like the drama isn't as high. Um, and that's not like a, a judgment claim, but just like the, the it's, it doesn't rely on that. Just the fact that there was a divorce is a part of the story of the daughter's life, but it isn't the central sort of dramatic crux of the novella. Yeah. One of the things um, that that this part of the conversation also reminds me of is the limitations of the linearity of storytelling. And so, you know, this is this is more a, a point about sort of genres and and what they allow us to do, and what is more difficult to portray or explicate or, or explain or show in in various genres. Tell a story about non sequential time, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Where the hell do you start? <laughs> how do you structure it? Where does it end? You know, how do you in a, you know, how do you in any, in any medium, in any genre, um, kind of do that. And so I think that here too, the, the novella and the film had very complicated choices to make about how to do that and how to pull that off and how not to, I mean, in the worst case scenario, like you, you attempt that and you make the reader or the audience feel cheated. Right. And again, I'm very clearly saying that that is not the case for these two, two pieces, but like in, yeah. in a, in a different attempt, like in a less skilled writer, in a less skilled filmmaker's hands, um, it's possible for one to attempt to tell a story about nonlinear time and to set the, set the audience up, right. For, for like a, oh, this is what it was about the whole time. Right. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, a revelation that doesn't feel earned or like a, a surprise ending that's a twist and not like, 
the unfolding of a thing that has been built the whole time. Does that make what, sense, right? Which is itself the question of like theological thinking and its intended finity, right? Because like there can't be Absolutely. a like unearned twist, right, in Heptapod. Mm-hmm. And so there shouldn't be in the film and the novella, right? Right. And like, but yeah. I, I, and I agree with you, Desiree, on both counts. In some ways, this is like one of the things I was most interested in in both is how both the novella and the film have to deal with the impossibility of representing in their form mm-hmm. the very thing that they're about. And the mm-hmm. choices that each of them make are like really, really exceptionally brilliant in order to attempt mm-hmm. to do that. And like, they are both inevitably going to fail in a teleological sense, but it's mm-hmm. like, how do they attempt to like fail as, as uh, like beautifully as possible? Mm-hmm. In which case I would say it's a, it's a success. Right. And there's like, yeah, the film on you know is doing a couple of different things to do this right the the editing choices that are made like particularly around the daughter are like the way that Villeneuve tries to attempt to like change our sequential way of thinking and representing and also like telling stories and narrativizing um i think most of all is the way that he's trying to do that and also the repetition of a couple like of those cuts right so it's like we get Mm -hmm. you know this like briefest of glance it can't be more than a half a second at the fact that their daughter has like sculpted out of play-doh or something right yeah it's gonna say right Mm -hmm. but then like we get it back at the end when louise is like having her revelation or her like ascension into thinking into thinking teleologically where we get that a little bit more or Mm -hmm. the drawing of the family broken apart contains the canary in the coal mine Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so to speak but we don't actually get a focus on that the first time that drawing comes up it's only later on that that happens Mm -hmm. and then there's like the more obvious things like she's dreaming and dreaming that one of the heptapods is there in her like you know her bunk or whatever with Mm -hmm. her which is I think kind of the most like hit you over the head moment yeah Um, but Mm -hmm. not in effective um i would say so it's like it's the editing choices that villeneuve and the rest of the creators there had to make right to attempt to solve that challenge and then like chang is using as you know is a bunch of like techniques we've already addressed whether it's like the address of you and the multiple U's that that are at work there whether it's the like the fermat stuff that i think is also an attempt to not just tell us something about the story and the characters but also change the way the reader is thinking to try to be able to think mm-hmm. teleologically so there's just like the the techniques that both of them resort to and i think really like generative ways to attempt to overcome the impossibility of the very thing they're trying to do is just like utterly fascinating to me about both of these yeah i mm-hmm. absolutely 100 percent agree and again in the ways that you're describing them having to make different choices i mean obviously they're working in different media right so like that that shapes the choices they have available to them um again i, I think i absolutely 100 percent agree in the novella one of the other ways that ted chang does it i, I talked earlier about how the novella is structured by like alternating sections of basically two different points of Louise's timeline, right? One is kind of what we at the beginning as a reader maybe under- think is the present of her interacting with the heptopods and trying to learn their language. And the other sections that are interspersed are those flashbacks, memories, future memories, whatever we want to call them of her relationship with her daughter. The critical point to me in the novella though comes when that distinction breaks down. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, we have section, 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 alternating sections of these two kind of different points of the timeline um, throughout. And there is a particular section where Louise is, um, again, sort of 
living or, or the narration is a, is, a, is a memory, a future memory of her interaction with her daughter about a particular concept, which is non-zero right. sum. And it's a, a mm. you know, a particular linguistic oh, concept. I loved those. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that is the section in which it does, it does not break the section. Right. And it flows right mm-hmm. into the other part of her timeline where she then uses that concept in that timeline or in that moment in the timeline effectively. Right. And so it's this sort of point. I'm getting like, chills just this, like this, reliving like, <laughs> that moment of reading that again. Like, yeah, oh my God. Yeah. Right. This like nexus point, if you will, or this like nodal point or something like that, where the, what have previously been to our understanding, two different timelines or two different points in the timeline, section by section, section by section, come together and they merge together because the conversation in the one point of the timeline you know, then informs the conversation or what Louise is doing in the other part of the timeline. And from then on, the sections break down, like the, the distinction between the, the sections break down from what it was before. And so that that was one of the things I was thinking about earlier when we were talking about, I agreed with Sid earlier when he said that like Fermat's principle and the mathematical and physical ideas take more, have more of a, of a presence in the novella versus the film. 100% absolutely agree with you. But what I was just describing about that nexus point is why I think the linguistic is also a path in the in the novella to the same revelation and that Chang is basically creating two paths both you know in the in the one one is the sort of physical mathematical and one is the linguistic to get Louise or to get the reader more importantly to the revelations of what Heptapod B is doing. Yeah, I agree with you. I I think that like he, he even says as much at the end of the novel where like they're talking about the physical principles of the universe with respect to Fairmont's principle and then writes like like physical events with their causal and teleological interpretations. Every linguistic event has these mm-hmm. two interpretations. One's to get information. The other one is to like realize this plan. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that for, um, for like smart storytelling reasons and dramatic reasons, Villeneuve was like, we're going to play up that tension in the context of language and use safer wharf as our sort of jumping off point. Uh, but I think that Chang is like very knowingly saying this happens both at a sort of like physical level, uh, also at this linguistic level. And for him, both are sort of in play at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not to say that Chang doesn't like think about the safer wharf hypothesis, but for him, it ends up being both a language ends up reflecting that duality in the physical world. Whereas the film, I think, really sits with a linguistic portion because it'd be really hard to like give all of those viewers, you know, intro to Fairmont's principle. I mean, the novella had to even give us some, uh, some diagrams, diagrams, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in, in terms of storytelling, I like, I think that they both did this really incredible job of portraying it, right? Like Mm -hmm. that moment about non-zero sum, I think was pivotal in Mm -hmm. the novella to make Mm -hmm. that, um, clear that there was a sort of interaction between those two two timelines as it were, but right. Even talking about two timelines is sort of like our causal, um, human right. trappings, right. but the film sort of like doubles down and does the same thing, but with the higher stakes, higher as it were, um, with talking to general Shang. And I think that in the novella, Chang does it at the beginning in this really subtle way where one of the first things that Louise says to her daughter is that, you'll die at 25 and mountain rescue will have to identify you, which implies that like she's speaking to someone who is already dead as mm-hmm. if that is going to happen in the future. Right. So there's already a confusion mm-hmm. past and mm-hmm. future um, on the second page. Mm-hmm. Right. We, we started talking about the limitations of telling stories, this kind of story. Right. But really what we're saying is that 
both of these, the novella and the film have, have, I think succeeded on this front, right? I think yeah, taken totally. a really hard task again, how to tell a story about nonlinear stories um, in a medium that ties you in some ways, at least to, to linearity or to linear time. Um, yeah. I, don't in, know. I think in, that's part of the brilliance of both of them. Yeah. In particular, because both the film and the novella, and I, I forget if it's a direct like use of something that Chang wrote, like, both Louise, Louise Banks and both of them says something to the effect of, well, like from the heptapods perspective, we have like shut down an entire like mode zone of communication, like mm -hmm. knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Time, like all of these sorts of things. And so there's a way in which like our conversation is, I think, saying that, you know, this is on the one hand, I think a banal observation, but like very, very true of both of these two texts is that they're using the possibility of fiction and of film to attempt to like exceed beyond the limitations that are like language and are like root linguistic, like modes of representation, like put on us, right? So like, that's mm -hmm. a thing that film and fiction could do generally. Like, that's a very classic point, but it's the way in which they do that while also thematizing that within the text itself in the like most direct way possible. Mm -hmm. that I think is one of the like kind of meta achievements of mm -hmm. those. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree with that hundred <sighs> percent. Quite amazing. Um, <laughs> any other like adaptational choices or kind of bigger ideas you all wanted to discuss before we head and do some segments? Um, one of the things that I found really interesting, and again on rewatching the film recently and on rereading the story, maybe is a little bit vexing to me, is the way that the film has chosen to represent the heptapod B mm. visually. Mm -hmm. Of course I, you were going to say this, Desiree. <laughs> I know. I was really fascinated by it and totally taken by it um, the first time through the, the film and maybe even the second time. I won't tell you how many times I've seen this. Um, but the right the idea is that like Heptapod B, the written form of the Heptapod's language, has sort of, I'm going to say, physical characteristics that speak to that rep, that embody that, I don't know, right? Um, make sense of our yeah, I mean, language. Our, our language fails us here, right? Like in mean, yeah. the deepest sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, that there's some congruence, let's say, between the physical representation or the physical look or construction of heptapod B and the way that that language understands time right? Or, or allows mm -hmm. you to understand time. And I think that, you know, in the film, um, there is something to like the circular pattern. There is something to, to that, um, layering and building that I think it does capture, but there's often moments in the film where that is represented in 2d. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's on screens or it's printed out and Louise is working on it on her laptop or on a sheet of paper or on a whiteboard or, you know, on a projector or something like that. And it's very 2d. And as I was rereading the novella, it struck me that the description of Heptapod B in the novella is very much 3d. It's very much like taking as many of sort of the spatial dimensions as possible and using those spatial dimensions to represent all of the uh, loops and whirls that get sort of added onto any particular kind of, you know, construction. Um, and it, to me in the novella, it's like, yes, it would make sense that every spatial dimension is utilized in a way to try to represent this complexity. And again, this non-linear, non, you know, um, temporally causal understanding of, of a sentence or of the meaning of a sentence. And so 
there's like a slight tiny little bit of me rewatching the film this time around being like, oh, I wish it were more 3D. Like I wish it sort of <laughs> captured, right? Like more, even more than it already does visually what that language, what the characteristics of that language that we've been talking about this whole time. I don't know. Don't get me wrong. I think it's still beautiful in lots of different ways in the film. The fact that, you know, the heptopods are shown to like create the the linguistic writing out of their actual tentacles versus in the novella, it's through a sort of technological device. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's awesome in the movie versus the, the novella, right? So I'm, you know, I'm quibbling about like tiny, tiny little things, but I did note that this time. Use all of your dimensions, God damn it! <laughs> when you were talking about, you know, sort of messing with the dimensions of time. Yeah, I think that that was like another one of these beautiful details in Ted Chang's writing, uh, where like when he is describing the uh, what's the terminology a semi-sciograph, mm-hmm. uh, where each line on its own, uh, like didn't amount to anything, but in its intersection with other lines or other marks brought into meaning all of these overlapping logographs. And I don't think that you can, you know, without just having some uh, actor like add it into their dialogue, really explain that. But in the film, I thought that even though it's not as sort of like in the same way that we were talking about with Dune earlier, right? Like you can't sort of read the viewer, the paragraph that's like really beautiful, like tells the story, but you can visually represent it. I thought that like the circular representation, it, it is a little bit of like a bonk you over the head. Uh, but I was like, oh, that's better than, you know, um, a lot of other things that could have been. Yes. For sure. For sure. Again, I'm quibbling around mm-hmm. the edges, right? Like I'm, you know. I think it is beautiful the way that it looks in the film. It just doesn't capture <laughs> the dimensions. I'm just going to say the word dimensions over and over yeah, again <laughs> of the, you know, the complexity yeah. of, of how it's <laughs> described and the reasons it's described that way in the novella. It's not just an aesthetic choice in the novella, right? Like it has, it is purposeful or it is like, again, there's a coherence, a, a, a congruence between the way it's described um, dimensionally, et cetera, and what it is doing, what it is. I like that because like for Chang and for this uh, story, there is no such thing as a purely aesthetic choice or an aesthetic choice is like always an epistemological choice or something mm-hmm. like that. And, you know, to, and to the maximal extent possible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the other things I noticed upon rewatching the movie is that the movie is much more about the sort of first person experiential, uh, well, maybe just experience of a first encounter. Yeah, there's a mm-hmm. lot more in the film about Louise and other characters, even just affective reaction to the presence of the heptapods and encounter in kind of all of the ways that that should invoke, you know, first encounter stories and alien contact stories and, you know, all of these kinds of things. Um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on her, like even physiological reactions. Uh, she's nervous. She you know, her heart's racing. She's frightened. Um, she has to steady herself. Like she, you know, is cautious at times and then sort of loses some of that caution in approaching the heptapod, like the looking screen or whatever. Um, right. So there's just a lot more emphasis placed in the movie. And I think for, for some obvious reasons or for some reason that are super sensical in the fact that it, like it is a film, (laughs) those kinds of things can be sort of shown. Um, in some ways better or more easily than maybe described in the novella and maybe to heighten the kind of the dramatic tension and maybe to connect the film more to the genre of first contact stories, maybe even than the novella is connected. That's Um, that's the one that I think mm -hmm. is really, that's yeah, that's where I think it's at. 
the last one. Yeah. That yeah. the film has, has made explicit choices. I mean, I think there's uh that makes a lot of sense to me too. I think there's uh, small and slight homages to movies like contact, for example, in, at the beginning mm-hmm. of the film. So yeah, I think that, you know, Villeneuve certainly knows his sci-fi and the history of sci-fi on film quite well. Um, and yeah, it, you know, this is speculative a bit, but I think um, probably made some choices to um, connect this film to that, to that sort of legacy, if you will. To that and history. that's like, also you're trying to like bring in an audience that saw For contact sure. or that like saw yeah. close encounters or saw like whatever it is that they are, um, that they are trying to play off. But yeah, the, the lack of, and I think this fits in with what Chang is trying to do in the novella, the lack of like, reason giving for the arrival or departure of the mm-hmm. heptapods in the novella is mm-hmm. very, very mm-hmm. striking. Mm-hmm. Um, given that like Sid, as you've pointed out several times, like is kind of one of the, if not the driving dramatic stake of the film. Mm-hmm. Right. And that gets into like the geopolitics part of it as well. And like, there's ways in which that's a simplification of what Chang is doing, presumably for like Hollywood political economy of film purposes to some extent, mm-hmm. but there is a way in which like, you know, the, the phrase that we get is offer weapon in the movie and all of them are like trying to, all right. of the different countries and sites and there are fewer sites, which makes sense to make it more manageable, um, narratively and, and also like visually in the, in the film. Um, but the like offer weapon in 3000 years, we need humanity's help. Like that raising of stakes is like, I think mostly Hollywood stuff, but the mm-hmm. push to consider that the, heptapods would be translated into human language where time becomes a weapon that itself is i think a fascinating sort of issue mm-hmm. that gets raised by the film yeah um, absolutely. through the like added kind of slightly more conventional narrative stakes that are layered upon the foundation that jane gives us yeah that makes me think so you know if part of our conversation just now has been about like the the uh the legacy, if you will, of kind of first contact stories on film. The description that you just gave, John, reminds me of other sci-fi works, um, novels, short stories, et cetera, that kind of play with these these um, themes, these questions as well. So there's a few um, Ursula K. Le Guin short stories. Um, one is called The Showbiz Story. That one starts off kind of a three short story set, if you will. And the premise there is that... Um, the cultures and civilizations in her universe have figured out how to travel across any distance instantaneously without time dilation, without, um, right. These kind of effects that, that physical laws of travel usually have prescribed for us and the consequences of that. Um, and so again, this kind of changing or a different understanding of physical laws or our ability to navigate them quite literally through time or through space and the consequence that that has, um, there's also um, the story of the three body problem or that the trilogy that the three body problem um, begins has the element of different kind of earthly factions reacting differently to the presence uh, to an alien presence um, and kind of the geopolitical stakes or the inter community or, you know, inter um, interhuman stakes of how one reacts to a situation like that. Does one react with aggression and fear and, you know, potential at least the threat of violence in return, does one react with 
curiosity and openness, but potentially with risk, you know, does one react in a, in a third or fourth or fifth different way? Um, and what does your choice or your group's choice or your community's choice about that then mean about your relationships to others? So there's, yeah, I'm just thinking about other, other stories that kind of, uh, attempt to get at some of these themes in, in their own way. Yeah. I mean, speaking of adaptations, like I think it's this year or next year, we get the streaming TV adaptation of three body problem, mm-hmm. right? Oh, by, yeah. by the yeah. game of Thrones co-creators, which is, uh, oh, fascinating. From what, from <laughs> the little I know about the, about the, about the, uh, novels themselves. Speaking is, of uh, curiosity with a little bit of a danger, but <laughs> 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 sure. I feel like I have uh, bogarted your time, uh, on this segment. So what, what about adaptational choices like stood out to you between the two that we haven't yet been able to discuss? So I think that the more that I think about it, the more that um, the implications of the dramatic climax of the film almost don't make sense. But I like don't think about them because I just am enjoying the movie and like mm-hmm. it's telling a story, right? But um, it, it's like unclear to me why Abbott had to die. Um, yeah, the death, the death of the one of the one character and the one heptapod character, I also don't really understand, except maybe right. just to illustrate that, like, they are not immortal beings. There is yeah, something possibly, to them not being immortal, but it emphasizes that, um, like reactionary hawkishness, but also, um, you know, given what we know about their relationship to the universe and temporality, it's like unclear why Abbott had to go through the death process as it were. And also, like, even though the General Shang thing is is really cool and interesting, it, I think, vaguely implies that through um, her communication with Shang, that humanity is able to exist, um, like, relatively peacefully for the next 33 or 3,000 years. Mm-hmm. And it just seems entirely unclear to me that that would be the case. Because if uh, knowledge of the future is something that only the physicists, or rather the linguists who uh, learned heptapod be sufficiently enough, um, uh, are, are able to have, like, if I were a realist cynic, why wouldn't I just kill all the linguists and then you can go back to your silly human game, right? Like, it just how this all sort of comes into being in the afterward, it raises a lot of questions for me that I am happy not to answer and ignore. But like in the novella, at least, the heptapods come and they just go, we're here to observe. And then they bail out. And then it's really a story about Louise and her daughter, right? Like it yep. goes back to the, like like we were saying at the top of the episode, right? The very human interactions, fears, and desires uh, of like creating a family and we're like relating to them in a loving way. Whereas the film, like, in elevating it to this dramatic geopolitical drama ends up assuming certain things that if I think too hard about them, I'm like not really convinced of. Well, I'll just make one more, you know, ploy with the linguistic bit by saying that, yes, if you understand your world from the premises and concepts of a cynical realist, then you will uh, find confirmation uh, in the world of oh, the aspects of the world that are cynical and realist. Uh, <laughs> but okay. no, no, no. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, the the constructivism (laughs) of language and your understanding of the world aside, I think that, you know, the, 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 the point in the, in the film that I do think works is that, you know, even if like the understanding of heptapod and thus the, the, the access or the understanding of kind of future events is only possible for some limited set of people in, in, in this case, Louise at the, at that point in the movie, um, 
I think the fact that she reaches out to or has this interaction with the general of a, you know, antagonistic army, right? It's not a U.S. general. It's not an ally in the, in the traditional sense, or at least in this, you know, in this time, part of the timeline. I think that's the thing that like allows me to go with it. Then it's having bridged a really big chasm. It's having bridged hmm. a chasm both in, um, who they are in terms of their, you know, um, professions, in terms of their national allegiances, in terms of you know, all of these differences that they might have, but also in the fact that Chang doesn't speak Heptapod, doesn't understand Heptapod, doesn't have this sort of perception of the world that she does. And so the fact, you know, it's fantastical that it works, that they have a conversation, that she remembers that he told her the dying words of his wife such that she can then say them to him on the phone to convince him that she's serious and has like, you know, deep knowledge of things that he doesn't, that he needs to pay attention to and maybe break that, you know, fragile shell of a realist cynical egg that he is. Um, the fact that it's fantastical, yes, but that it works and that it bridges that chasm between quite different characters on different literal sides of this kind of interhuman, you know, conflict or potential conflict, um, I think is the thing that like makes me go with it. Now, of course, I agree with you that like how then the world is at peace and, you know, how all of the flags are represented equally. And, and, you know, we have these events, um, that are only briefly shown kind of in a, in a future part of the timeline, um, where internation state conflict seems to have abated, how that comes to be, how that's sustained. Yeah. Those are obviously open questions that, you know, we can have whole international relations courses about and fight about. <laughs> Beautiful. Should we head into the segments? Let's, yeah, let's do, do it. it. All right. We've got, we've got everybody's favorite gloss. So the random observations, shout outs, things you want to point out, lines that stood out to you, decisions of uh, camera work or cinematography or literary technique that, that particularly intrigued you all. I thought the film was gorgeous. And I thought that Amy Adams hair in that one scene was dreadful. Yes. Like the, the CG floating hair. It's like, that was the only part of it that took me out. It's like, yeah, damn, that looks like shit. And the rest of the film is like, this is gorgeous. It's beautifully shot. Yeah. Like, yeah, damn. I think the choice in the film to make the alien artifacts that arrive on earth quite different than in the novella. If you'll remember in the novella, they're described mm -hmm. as kind of looking glasses that are quite small in dimensions, at least compared to what, what we see in the film that they're kind of articulated in the novella as, um, sort of a half shell uh kind of i don't want to say plexiglass because that's not what it's made of but like you know a clear transparent kind of material um right that functions as a viewing screen and as a as a you know mode of interaction in the movie of course we get these like giant you know like what ovoid like Mm -hmm. I don't even know what it are withheld <laughs> from us for a while as a viewer too, which I appreciate. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, but like even the, the, the visual choices or the aesthetic choices around the, the one that we are, that we most are engaged with in the film, which is the one in Montana, right. In this like, you know, pastoral field with the rolling Hills and the yep. fog, like coming off the Hills and surrounding it. And the, the way that they disappear at the end and like dissolve into mist, right. All of those things I thought were just visually stunning and effective mm -hmm. right in the sense of like showing both like the mystery and the grandeur but also the inexplicability of these objects yeah i think that um i i read in a tweet so this might just be bullshit but that the design of the like heptapod pot as it were the pod um, pod 
the pod pod <laughs> is uh, like is is modeled off a asteroid that mm-hmm. uh, we've like observed and logged. So like there is actually um, something like that floating around. Probably not have pods on it, but I, I just thought that that ah, was like bummer. really beautiful and uh, and wonderful. I think that I I really appreciated the score of the film mm-hmm. the second time around after I had like mm-hmm. you know digested it the, for the first time. Um, it's the score is giving like the calmest Godspeed you Black Emperor. Uh, like they're like <laughs> yeah, 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 they're, yeah. they're like more <laughs> the classical interludes um, than mm-hmm. than like their uh, bombastic climaxes. So I really I loved the score. I loved the way that they used the score, and it and the score I think is functioning really effectively to do the we're being dramatic without melodramatic, right? That we talked about in terms of Chang's writing. Like I think the score mm-hmm. in the film does a sim- has a similar sort of like function with the way it works on at least me as audience mm-hmm. i i loved the reveal that the heptapods are so much taller than you yes. think that they are through the screen oh interesting yeah what time I mean, talk about adaptational choices right like louise goes to hang out with the heptapods like yeah. in mm-hmm. their space in the film you know? yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah she goes she goes rogue yeah. um i thought that this this film Again, we talked earlier about how the film is is more like specifically uh, tying to the legacy of like first contact movies and things like that than the novella is. Um, I think that to me, the scenes near the beginning of the film, when the aliens first arrive or the artifacts first descend and people are finding out about it are some of the most realistic on film that I think I've ever seen. And maybe it's because like I too am a college professor and I too right, yep. have have students in classes <laughs> and I too have had moments like where big things are happening and you sort of see how students react or you see kind of this wave of notifications or you kind of notice at first that the students aren't really paying attention because there's something, you know, outside of the classroom that's happening. That's super important. Um, and mm-hmm. so to me, at least like that, uh, that was very effective. Like that definitely brings it home to me of like, Oh shit, what would that be like? And you know, where would I be? And, how would, you know, maybe my daily habits and, and being in the classroom or, or having students in front of me or not in front of me um, play out if something, you know, world changing like this would, were to happen? Yeah, totally. I like it viscerally reminded me of like 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, the stock uh, uh, the stock market crash in 0708. Even more recently, I remember when all my students got really distracted when the uh, Queen of England died, mm-hmm, and they were all mm-hmm. um, like looking at their phones yep. and it's like, "What's going on out there?" You know, like I, it just it felt that portrayal felt um, really, really real. I mean, I'll just use this moment to think, say that like I thought Amy Adams, who I guess like her performance is apparently somewhat controversial in this film about whether she's really? doing what? well at acting or not, as really? I oh. discovered from poking around the internet a little bit last huh. week. Um, I thought she's fucking excellent. Yeah. I also definitely yeah. called Amy Adams, Amy Allen, i.e. the... I think twice earlier in the movie. Um, <laughs> so she is like, she is killing it in this film. Like at mm-hmm. every level uh she's yeah, really, really I agree. great yeah I'll, I'll maybe say one specific thing about that i agree with you yeah. john 100 percent, and i'm actually a little surprised to hear that you found uh, people booing it or whatever um or quibbling about it it could um, just be like usual online sexist bullshit yeah. like that's, yeah. that's possible yeah. um i noted this time around in the movie that her affect at the beginning of the film is quite flat is yes, quite i loved um, that yeah it's, it's you know a sort of i i would 
understand if somebody thought that she was depressed as a character, right? And to me, the thought that I had this time around is that standard college professor <laughs> no that's not where i was going but thanks um no. highly relatable content yeah. personally offended by this highly like, relatable college that's why i thought it was such a good portrayal <laughs> i was going in an entirely different direction uh but you know good 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 job um no the the line that i was or the line that i was pursuing was that like at the beginning of the film like going back to this idea of the the difficulties of portraying um non-linear story and linear and mostly linear genre or medium right my sort of read of it this time knowing what the movie's about knowing that i've seen it before knowing how it ends was that it lets you think that her memory flashes of her daughter dying are the reason that she's depressed yeah. Again, it lets you think that, right? Obviously, mm-hmm. it is then the case that the reveal is that that is temporarily not the sequence in which we're operating, yeah. right? So I want to be clear that it's not me like misreading the whole, the oh, whole no. thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it points to like why Amy Adams is so good because you're exactly right that her performance makes that reading available to mm-hmm. us. I'm yeah. totally mm-hmm. with you there. Yeah. Or the divorce, or you know, like all of these yeah, things right. that that we see as like flashes. Again, I'm not going to say flashbacks because I'm not flashbacks, sure. uh, but these flashes <laughs> of memory for her right that are hard things that that you as an audience member are like oh she's experienced this right she's gone through this like her you know sure there's moments of joy when her daughter is born but then you almost immediately or very early on in the in the film get this the idea that you know this child has a serious illness this child passes away uh the fact that she she as a character louise is like by herself in this relatively big house right by the lake yeah. um college professor salaries being what they are. I was like, oh, that's yeah, a pretty like, good no, no. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I, I, don't, I won't belabor the point anymore, but it's just to say that like her, her sort of flattened affect or maybe even, you know, depressed or at least like having gone through, through a bunch of shit uh, makes sense to me as a, as an actorly choice, given the fact that the audience is introduced early to some of the things that could be sources of that trauma. Now, again, temporarily, it's not the source. It's not the cause. Yeah. Causes, you know, don't work this way, but and that affect comes back when the film goes to the non-zero sum game scene. Mm-hmm. Like that's actually with a different set of knowledge for us as viewers and her mm-hmm. as character. Like that happens again. Like that particular affect. Like she brings it back there, which I think works given your reading here. Yeah, and the last thing I think I'll say in this segment is that I really liked Forrest Whitaker in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that, as we were saying earlier, uh, Chang doesn't overdo it, right? And I think it would have been a really easy choice to have, uh, for Villeneuve to have the military just be these, like, you know, oorah, uh, like, jarhead jackasses. He but saves that for the CIA, asshole. He, he does, exactly. <laughs> like, he saves it for the CIA, but for the rest of the time, Force would he's like, um, he's almost sympathetic. He, like, at some times, um, defers to Louise. He seems to listen. Uh, and I think that like that sort of almost sympathetic character emphasizes the point that it doesn't have to be this hoorah over the top thing to be incredibly pernicious and violent. Right. And that Forrest Whitaker did a really good job of sort of like being almost relatable and like sometimes genuinely sympathetic, but still being part of this system that compels us towards violence. I think that's right. And I, you know, credit to Forrest Whitaker and said, I agree with your, your description. I do think that the choice in the film to do that though, also sets up the contrast to the, um, to the member of the military that sort of goes rogue and plants the bomb or the the small squad of them that does so. Right. So like, you know, 
it isn't a unitary um, description or representation of the military, again, to, to Villeneuve's credit, but it also isn't unitary in part because he does portray the more conspiratorial, conspiracy theory-minded, reactionary, violent elements of an element of that, uh, of that uh, group of soldiers. Right. Should we head on to double feature? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So here we are going to do what we started doing with the software episode. We are going to uh, create what the perfect double feature for the novella or for the film or for both is. And in, in Daniel's honor, we can speculate about, she put down the movie. Grease. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't know. I want to like, I know that Danielle's teleological mind is, you know, far surpassed my own capabilities and capacities. I, I wish that uh, she were she were here to explain that because I I am extremely I would love to know that. yeah but any, any hypotheses about Greece uh, is the double feature for Arrival from either of you I got nothing this is beyond my comprehension <laughs> <laughs> I just all right Danielle's thinking and have to pod B and we're stuck in our right, fucking I'm human language a, yeah. yeah we need to commit to like texting each other when in the future we get the piece of information that makes this make sense <laughs> and we think back right. to this moment and we're like ah yes revelation has oh, happened don't worry Danielle is a reliable listener so like she will listen <laughs> and she will text one or all of us like or email all of us like right now um, speaking about knowing the future okay uh Desiree, what is your double feature with you know, Arrival and or Story of Your Life? Well, so I thought about the film first and maybe I came up with a really boring pick, but I was thinking about other Denis Villeneuve films and I nice. was thinking about Blade Runner 2049. That is worthy of its whole own discussion, especially as in its relationship to Blade Runner, the first one. But I think that... Are Blade you claiming out future episodes of the Not Quite Great Books podcast? <laughs> Maybe. Um, but with Blade Runner 2049, again, also Villeneuve, um, I was thinking about the fact that both this film and that film are, I think, about centrally the human experience and about the human experience of the world. Because again, spoiler alert for 2049, I think the center of that story for me is the question of whether Kay is human or not. Um, and he goes through these phases and these moments and these experiences where he understands himself to be human or entertains the possibility of that. And um, there are moments where, you know, his own memories of his childhood are things that humanize him, but then it's revealed again, spoiler alert, that those memories are actually planted memories, et cetera, et cetera. And so like, again, to me, both of these films are about the human experience or what it means to be a human and have experiences of the world. And, what it means to have different experiences in arrival, right? Um, sort of augmented or that set of experiences augmented by heptapod B um, and in Blade Runner 2049 um, questioned because of the possibility that the main character through which we're understanding these questions might not be human at all. Beautiful. Sid, what do you got? So I initially was going to say contact, but I feel like it's just too easy, right? Um, or like oh, Independence it's so Day or something. Yeah, it is. I mean, like Contact is so good. It, it is read, absolutely like a double feature. Read that novel too. That is, right. again, very, very good. Yeah. I, you know, forever Sagan Stan. Like I could, I could say so many nice things about uh, Contact, <laughs> but I think, I, I don't know. In the last five minutes, I want to change my mind and say we should watch uh, Memento with this um, nice. film. Okay. Mm. My, my, uh, <laughs> my double feature is in that same spirit. I like this. Yeah. Oh, well, I was going to say Memento and Primer. 
I think those are the two films that I would watch alongside this one in order to wrestle with the, like the weight of a temporality or like a temporality that doesn't follow our usual causal understanding of the world. I think that'd be super, super fun. I was in alien mode earlier, but now I'm in time mode. I think those Mm -hmm. are the ones. My double, I have two double features and I'm in both time and alien mode as well. So (laughs) picking up on Sid's suggestion, my somewhat joke double feature is Tenet, right? So I'll I'll go with a different Nolan than Sid, right? Because there's, (laughs) because like, I actually really adore Tenet and I'm kind of here for the like rehabilitation of it in 2023. I'm willing to be a part of that movement. Um, And, but I would not want Christopher Nolan to do Arrival, or I would not want Christopher Nolan no. to like do to like try to take up Ted Chiang. That would not work. But like, so it's it's mostly a joke answer. But I do actually think Tenet's quite good, even if it doesn't right. make sense. Speaking, speaking so, of I'm, incomprehensible I'm, I'm, I'm language, cool. you know. <laughs> oh, I yeah. I was going to actually tie Tenet back to a point earlier in the conversation where we were talking about again the difficulties of narrative storytelling. Right, if the story is about non-temporal, non-sequential uh, stories or whatever, and I don't, I think that Tenet is my example of how it fails, how it goes wrong. Oh yeah, of how I, it's I'm, done poorly. I, like, I would say fails, but doesn't go poorly. That's that's the distinction ooh, I would make. Okay, yeah, you are all about the vibes. Uh, fails beautifully. Yes. Hell yeah! Oh no, that's a John vibe. I know that. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. Um, and then, but my my more serious, and this is my alien mode, is under the skin. The Jonathan oh, yeah. Glazer film yes. you know, with Scarlett Johansson. What nice. I think, similarly to a point that both of you have raised in different ways, is that that's spoilers for Under the Skin. Uh, alien. We th- I'm assuming we can safely interpret ourselves our handsome characters <laughs> and alien um, in that film. Like the way that the presence, the arrival of an alien into human relations, as well as like questions about knowledge and morality, mm-hmm. like shows that mirror or raises the stakes mm-hmm. or like asks some of the most difficult questions possible mm-hmm. about human existence, experience, like sensibility of the world, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, like under the skin is one of my absolute favorite movies. Mm-hmm. It's so nice. good. I yeah. mean, you mm-hmm. can, I would just totally second that. Um, you know, the aesthetic choices in that film also yeah. amazing. Oh my god, the fucking black pool. Yeah, of the, the house end. that she lures yeah. them back to the or, child or, alone on the mm-hmm. shore holy shit mm-hmm. or like her figure in the forest at the end mm-hmm. and like her fire kind of, yeah. yeah 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 just oh my god so many things about that uh, movie amazing yeah so when when can i see zone of interest come on i want to see that that's his new film that uh-huh. came out in some places but i do not have access to it anymore yeah i don't, I don't either yet <laughs> i would love to see it yeah um, all right. We're fettered is... by a linear time, John. <laughs> Damn it. I Damn can't it. believe it. Um, so that is a great double feature. Now we're heading to everyone's favorite segment, the cave. Um, so <laughs> in spirit of Plato season on the Americans and elsewhere, um, we're going to extend Plato season to, uh, to, to the film and to the novella nice. itself. And so we're not going to read any Plato. Um, we're just going <laughs> to say that like the cave, the allegory of the cave that is the play-doh that we are doing for the segment the cave and i have many thoughts about the cave in relationship probably more so to the to the film than to the novella but i will i will defer to my guests so as to not take up all of the space how might we think about the cave in Plato in regards to our two cultural texts for today i mean i think that going back to something said said earlier about the novella um of how 
in the novella, it's very clear that Heptapod B doesn't allow you an experience of a different world or something like that. It is a different experience of the same world, right? Importantly, Mm -hmm. it is a different Mm -hmm. way to see the same thing, to experience it, to understand it, to act in it, et cetera. Um, And I think in that way, there's points of connection to the cave insofar as like the cave and outside of the cave is still the same world. You are just occupying it in in a different sort of relationship to it and you are experiencing or you're exposed to different experiences of it. You are perceiving it in different ways, whether you're, you know, chained in the in the cave and being shown only the, you know, shadow images on the screen or whether you are led out of the cave or lead yourself out of the cave. Um, and so I think that, you know, that question, that big kind of theme of how, how is it that you perceive the world? Um, and can you change it? Both the cave and the novella and the film, I think answer, yes, you can change it. Um, there's more of probably a dichotomy in a sense in the cave, right? Between the perception of the world in the cave and the perception of the world outside of the cave. Of course, Plato represents the <laughs> external parts of the cave as like the true and the good and so forth. Yeah. And basking in the sunshine of, of the real um, and not just mere line, appearance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, whereas the film and the novella say that both of these are perceptions. And I don't think necessarily takes, uh, you know, takes a stance on like which of these is superior to the other or something like that. So there's definitely differences um, with the analogy to the cave as well. I love that. That's smarter than what I was going to say. Sid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, you know, like, uh, it, obviously in the, in the visual presentation, Philadelphia, it's like, it's a fucking cave, you know? Like, you go into the thing, yeah. and then um, you go and you look at the stuff my, on the wall. That's as far as I got. Yeah, I'm like, it's, it's like, the, I'm the Leo meme, like, Leo meme, like, pointing and being right. like, there, Ooh, there, there, it is. the cave. <laughs> no, totally. I, I found that, like, compelling. I think, you know, to Desiree's point, um, I got the sense that in the movie Heptapod B, like because it is so incredibly powerful from the viewpoint of humans who experience the world through this causal um, lens, that it is in a way more powerful or more, um, more like beautiful or truthful, true, like true, good, beautiful, et cetera. And I think that there's like, there are hints of this in the novella, like, especially when Luis is like, you're more innocent for being a child. This is the sort of like tragic Mm -hmm. aspect that I was talking about earlier that I think there is a sort of like subtle hierarchy there in the same way that there is for, um, you know, it's not subtle in Plato, right? Like if you, if you're a philosopher, you know, the forms like that, fuck yeah. Right. (laughs) But, um, I think like, for Chang and for Villeneuve, uh, but like more so for Chang, there's still a um, an aspect to the human experience, the tragic human experience of the world that is worthy of beauty and like worthy of our admiration, right? So like in the cave, the the shadows are like a fiction that we tell ourselves, but um, they're they're they are a fiction, right? Uh, They're degraded in, in, copies, right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, no, put it's it a, uncharitably it's a, from his perspective. It's a bad yeah. time, right? right? But for Chang, it's like, you know, even if you know the end point, what is the fiction that you tell yourself in order to, like, find love and beauty in, in you know, to, to reference Miley Cyrus? Uh, it's the climb, right? Like, it's, it's like something about getting there it's, that it's is still beautiful and dignified. It's becoming eh? Yeah, sure. And I think, like, there's, there's a lot of dignity in the degraded human like 
experience of the universe that I think Plato would uh, say no to. Yeah, I'm I'm with you all there. I think that there's a you know because like if the passage in the film up to the heptapods, like the viewing area, is the cave, then like then heptapod B, then like the heptapod mode of heptapod mode of like thought, knowledge, epistemology, time, physics, all of these things become the forms, which I think does interesting mm-hmm. things or imposes an interesting reading on it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this line towards the end of the film where Jeremy Renner's character um, was like, I spent too much time looking up at the stars and I'm like reminded of Plato's justification of like astronomy as an essential part of philosophy because it, it takes your head upwards, like mm-hmm. literally mm-hmm. Um, to like look upwards towards where we might locate the forms. Um, and then like, there's this, I think, um, as if quality that we started the conversation with, like one of my things when I teach the Republic as I do occasionally is like, you know, I'm not interested in us talking about like, was Plato right or not? Like we're going to try to inhabit the world of Plato's thought. We're going to act as if this is the thing that we're going to take on and see what kind of like wild things are going to happen as a result. And I tell them that like, this is one of the most bizarre things we could read and also brilliant and also like fucked up and, you know, strange. So there's that part of it. And you then would like, say that John, I, would. I, I remember, um, I remember that you're a Neoplatonist. If I, <laughs> you know. Oh, wow. Oh my God. No, no, you can. Danielle is not here. You do not have to join her yeah, team no. on this. No, this is, um, this is canon. Sorry, John. <laughs> this, and then the, this was so convivial this whole time, and now the aspersions get cast. Yeah, and then and then the other thing is, I think that there's a way in which some of the free will determinism stuff plays into if not the cave itself, but like what do those who have access, who have reached out of the cave when they go back in, right? They're constructing illusions of free will that mm-hmm. are in fact determined, but not determined by like a, a teleological sense of time, but like by fallible humans, right? Cause like yep. what happens, like you fuck up the eugenicist breeding program and that's the start of the downfall of the city and speech. If it ever exists in the first place, which right. obviously is a question. So mm-hmm. yeah. All right, we got let's, we got a theory ship. We'll we'll throw Danielle's out there. Um, Danielle would like to assign <laughs> of grammatology by Derrida to the heptapods, <laughs> which I think is a joke about the fact that she's threatened to uh, make us do Derrida for season five of the Americans. Um, and, then, and then also um, to Louise, she wants to assign Judith Butler's gender trouble, and I think there uh, Danielle is thinking about performativity. So maybe. Des, you might want to offer your theory ships first to pick up on some of Danielle's suggestions. Yeah. Um, one of the, right. I mean, the, both, both Danielle's suggestions and mine are going to take us back to the thematic of language and, and how it's understood and constructed and what it does and how it relates to the world and so on. Um, and so one of the, one of my suggestions here is for, um, Maybe actually it's Jeremy Renner character, because I think Louise might have already read this book in the in the film. Um, to read AJ Ayer's How to Do Things with Words. Um, it's you know, this text that is where performative utterances, performative speech, perlocutionary, elocutionary um uh speech comes from, or or where at least Ayer kind of sets this out most clearly and what and the work that is referenced um most commonly for those conversations. And so again, the performative element um, the way in which, um, meaning of our language is 
shaped by our performance of it, mm-hmm. what it means to perform language when you already know the broad strokes of what's going to happen, right? Again, all of these kind of questions that we've talked about at various um, times in this conversation. Um, there's also something interesting to how to do things with words, um, which is that it's AJ apparently like, again, as I said, setting out these categories and describing how these elements of speech work and what their effects are and so forth. And there's one way of reading that text that actually kind of sees the end of that speech undermining his very distinctions. And so there's also kind of a performative element to that text itself that might be interesting to investigate. But again, I think that Louise might already know this, right? And so I don't really want to assign it to her because she is a linguist and I think a pretty damn good one. Um, but, uh, but Jeremy Renner's character. that fucker at Berkeley, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but Jeremy Renner's character maybe has some homework to do besides sarcastically reading the first line of her own book to her as they're in the helicopter. Uh, but Correct. the actual ship that I, you know, I feel obligated to, to articulate um, are elements of Ludwig Wittgenstein's later philosophy about aspect seeing. And so there's not a specific work except for maybe philosophical investigations to point to, but only a portion of it. Um, and aspect seeing is his concept for explaining everything from on the basic level, uh, you know, visual illusions, like why we're able to see the old woman in profile and the young woman in profile you know, at the same time in that sort of uh, visual illusion that we're all familiar with or why the rabbit and the, you know, the duck picture allows us to see one aspect and other people to see another aspect. And so to me, that kind of ties back to, again, kind of what Sid was explaining earlier about um, the novella emphasizing that heptapod B's way of understanding the world and the human way of understanding the world are two ways to understand the same thing. And so aspect seeing is fundamentally Wittgenstein's attempt to kind of get a handle on or figure out what's going on with being presented with the same object, but having two different people or even you at two different points in time see two different things in it. Um, and I think that is both a really, really interesting mystery um, and something that I think ties to the mm-hmm. novel or to the novella here and the film. Love that. I am totally ignorant on Wittgenstein other than like a week on it in a class in grad school. And it was, I think it was philosophical investigations that we read bits and pieces parts of. Um, I'll send you so the <laughs> <laughs> Oh, now, now Desiree is assigning me reading. That's not how this is supposed to work. Oh, damn. <laughs> Sid, who are you theory shipping this week? Or this? Ooh, well, yeah. um, do we the, mili- yeah. <laughs> the military has to read Alex Wentz, Anarchy is what states make of it. <laughs> I mean, uh, just like, you know, it doesn't all have to be this, uh, oh, we don't know their intentions. We have to do the realist thing. It gets super hawkish, right? Like our categories of understanding to Desiree's point, to your point, John, to the point of the film and the novella is that our conception of the world like structures uh, whether or not we think it's full of threats and how we see ourselves in it. And I think this is Alex Wentz's point in the military would do well to fucking read a book and for the heptapods um i think that they would just like to kick back and enjoy any of the like fiction or social science that has to do with all the ways that we harm ourselves because we can't see Mm -hmm. beyond our like temporal horizon right Mm -hmm. so like whether or not that's just you know fill in the blank greek tragedy right go read Oedipus, or if they want to read some of the good uh mid-20th century social science like zimbardo's lucifer effect or milgram's (laughs) obedience to authority to just see all the bad shit humans get up to when um they feel as if their volition is being warped or exploited and like to what deadly ends that aims us. I think, I think it's where I start. 
you don't want to like give them some authoritarian personality. That's that's your version of of Desiree assigning Wittgenstein. I know, I know. I could have been like, you know, they should just read Adorno. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's coming next. Don't worry. That would be a whole different movie. <laughs> so mine is an extremely obvious one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give to Denis Villeneuve. Uh, he, you know, he probably is already like implicitly knows a lot of the stuff in here, but we're gonna give him Deleuze. Cinema to the time image, and I think this like Ooh. speaks to how the ways in which Villeneuve is trying to use the techniques of cinema to get at the questions about temporality that the that the, the novella does, and specifically then how he's trying to address the like. Um, inability or impossibility of representing, you know, the non-sequential storytelling, the neo-narrativizing, um, in a book that, like, is about what happens to time, and, like, here Deleuze is, like, drawing on Bergson, and the Bergson's discussion of duration and all of that kind of stuff um, in this book. And just like, there's a way in which I think Villeneuve already knows implicitly some of what Deleuze is doing. And I think it'd be fun for, for Denis to actually get to read about it. Um, and who knows, maybe it would make Dune part three, if it comes even more strange. Lucky. <laughs> I, I feel compelled to jump back in and say, like, if we're doing, if we're doing on brand, I mean, eternal return, gotta read Nietzsche. Like, let's, <laughs> you know, like, we simply must, you know. Who's, who, everybody, all of the characters in novella and film and all creators. Um, every single person, uh, but Jeremy Renner twice. <laughs> you had to pods get Nietzsche? Time is already a flat circle for them. Literally. <laughs> Literarily. In writing. I think that means we've come to an end. Desiree said, this was absolutely wonderful. I've had such a great time. This has uh, been awesome. And like really deepened my appreciation, which was already quite Thanks high so much, for both of these. <laughs> Um, Desiree said we come back on not quite great books in the future. If you insist. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, twist, twist my arm, Joe. <laughs> All right. I, I suspect that will happen when we don't know we're stuck in our silly human patterns of thought and time. But at some point, I think we'll definitely have you back. Um, so our, our usual shout outs are thanks to Danielle, whose uh, notes and conversations we had before the attempted first recording definitely informed uh, our discussion today um and also of course uh shouts to uh producer amy as well um in in spirit too and uh until next time we hope you've enjoyed listening to not quite great books tv and other stuff podcast Thank you for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It's created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.